0: Welcome to Car Wash, the podcast, your source for real stories and real business insights from the experts, both in and out of the car wash industry. So put it in neutral, feed off the brakes, and take your hands off the steering wheel, because here we go. Here is your guide on this journey. David Begin of Begin
1: Insights. Hello, Car Wash Nation. Thanks for joining us on this episode of Car Wash the Podcast, the podcast that makes you a great car washer and a slightly better human being. And this particular episode is part two of a conversation I had with Mike Finger from Exit Oasis. We talk about the challenges and opportunities of selling a small business and what you need to do to get ready if you're considering selling your car wash or your small business. So here's the rest of our conversation with Mike Finger from Exit Oasis seeing some really weird ways people are pricing businesses now. And I think you might have talked about this maybe in an article, but if you go to the typical sites like BizBuySell is one and sometimes on Craigslist, but the valuations that people are coming up for businesses nowadays are not the traditional ways that we've seen business being evaluated. The most traditional way is either a percentage of revenue or a factor of revenue, or a factor of earnings, like how much money did you earn? Are those still pretty much the traditional ways? Or are you seeing some pretty? I mean, almost exclusively,
0: in terms of acceptance, I see the multiple of earnings. That tends to be the, I don't want to say the gold standard, because that implies that it's good. It's just screwy. There's so many different formulas that can get used in creating that, but it tends to be a multiple of earnings in terms of evaluation. I mean, you look at any industry and there's averages in there. Of course, the averages just get blown out of the water when you look at the individual business. Again, nationwide, small business, multiple average is around 2.4 or 2.5. So take your cash flow for the year, multiply by 2.5. That's the ballpark you should start from. Now, again, there are some industries that are just crazy weird when it comes to that. Again, car wash is one of those. How much does it cost me to wash my first car? Well, it can be millions of dollars. That's not to suggest that you don't have value on day one after you've spent that kind of money building a car wash, but it still comes down to the question of what your buyer can afford to do. The lenders in almost every case are going to look at multiple when it comes to what they're willing to lend on. And so that dictates a lot. I'm a huge skeptic of revenue. I've told people this before, you know, say the same to you, David, if you want me to, before the end of this month, I can generate a $1 million producing revenue business. I just need you to give me $3 million, right? I mean, revenue is so easy to generate compared to profitability. So That doesn't mean that you can't work backwards and get to a revenue number, but I've actually seen that happen. I've seen somebody say, one of my competitors sold for one times revenue, so therefore my business is worth $5 million. What they fail to recognize is that their competitor also sold for three times profit, both of those were true. Three times profit was one times revenue for their competitor. The problem is, is that this business didn't make any money, yet they still move forward assuming one times revenue.
1: It's interesting the way people are pricing businesses nowadays, because I always thought traditionally you would do it based on earnings and then you would play with the numbers. You have an EBITDA number, you'd have some holdbacks, and you kind of come together on what that real number is. But nowadays, if you go to these websites where people are selling businesses, There's all types of different ways people are pricing businesses. And there's this term now out there called implied value. (laughs) One of your favorite terms, Mike. I love that. That's fabulous. (laughs) What in the world is that? And is it as big of a scam as I think it is?
0: David, I wouldn't even venture down that rabbit hole. I was looking at a business for sale the other day. And what was the term she used? Implicit value.
1: Implicit, okay.
0: What that translates to is what I as the owner think it's worth. And so I'm not gonna sit here and say, you can't sell a business that way. I am gonna sit here and say, if that's the approach you're taking, you're eliminating 97% of the buyer pool. And that's okay, right? I mean, if that's how you're gonna choose to move forward, but if you're not willing to take a realistic look, David you're a buyer. What do you need? I need to pay the debt that I incur to buy the business. And I have to continue to buy groceries and pay rent. So I need an income and I need to service the debt. It'd be really cool if I could also make a little bit of money. In most every case, somebody wants to make a little bit of money, but let's even take that off. If I can't do those two things, then it's a non-starter for 97% of the buyer pool. And again, you and I both know owners who come to the table and they say, my business is worth a million dollars and it makes $47,000 a year. Okay, feel free to put it out there. But how does somebody buy that?
1: Yeah. So is that a good example of the emotional component of trying to sell your business? Or is it just a different way people? I mean, it seems like everything feels like it's overpriced nowadays. And I don't know if businesses are overpriced as well. but. Is it the attitude, somebody might give me a million dollars. If I don't ask for a million dollars, they're not going to give me a million dollars for my business. Is it some of that? Or do you think it's still some of that? I really believe in my business. It's going to be emotionally difficult for me to split up with my business. Is it that talking?
0: Yeah, I can't give you the results of a study on that. I can tell you qualitatively in my experience, most of the times an overvaluation is something that is fundamentally believed by the seller. I don't have any problem with someone testing the market, right? I don't have a problem if somebody comes to the table and say, listen, I wanna list this business for a million dollars. As long as the next words out of their mouth are, I know the traditional valuation puts it at 750. You and I sell stuff all the time. Sometimes we sell it for more to somebody than someone else. I don't have any problem with that. It's that question of informed consent. And that sounds fairly calm, but how does that translate? That translates into meeting a business owner whose only retirement plan is selling their business for $750,000 and the business is worth nothing. That hurts really bad, not just for the business owner, but sitting and explaining to them that it's not there. It's not gonna happen. And there's a high percentage of business owners. The last last number I saw is that 57% 57 of business owners are planning for the sale of their business to fund their retirement. And we already talked about the fact that less than 20% will sell successfully. That's a crazy gap. And it's an uninformed gap. And it's an incredibly painful gap when a business owner experiences it.
1: It's really a sad situation because they've worked so hard in their business. They worked in their business and their expectations at the end are much different than what reality would tell them.
0: Absolutely. And again, that's why we focus on those basics. Desirable, duplicatable, documentable. Again, nothing about focusing on those simple questions means you can't sell to private equity. Because, David, you tell me, they came to the table, what did they want to know about your business? Is it profitable? There's some basic questions there that any buyer is going to care for.
1: I think they were more interested in, is it profitable? Is there opportunity in the future? These guys didn't care much about, did you have systems in place? I think they assumed if you were doing well, you probably had good systems in place. But institutional buyers are going to replace your systems with their systems.
0: That's a great point. We talk about the strategic buyer. Again, I talk to owners who their default plan that they keep in their back pocket is that they're going to sell to their competitor because 15 years ago, their competitor said, hey, if you're ever thinking about selling, let me know. But to your point, if I buy a competitor, what are the odds that I'm going to keep their systems and their brand and all these things that represent value Or am I more likely going to wash over all of that with my stuff?
1: I think that's the fundamental difference. I think I might've mentioned this, but we're in the process of selling our frozen yogurt store, which is a more traditional small business. It very much has a good brand. It has the systems in place. It's very much, the owners don't need to be there. I'm there maybe an hour or two every other week. So it is one of those businesses that we've set it up from the very beginning. So we hopefully this thing will be, sellable in the future but a lot of people don't do that a lot of times the owners are working in the business and they haven't documented their processes and policies and that does make it super hard to sell so keep our fingers crossed it's interesting this is a much different selling process than the one i went through a year ago year and a half ago absolutely i bet it is
0: what are you finding in terms of buyers who's knocking on the
1: door a lot of customers are interested, but we get a lot of people with interest, but I uh, haven't been serious. We've had a few people who are serious, but are concerned about the future of hospitality and what's going to happen with COVID. And, you know, we've gone to these where restaurants are open, and then restaurants are closed and then restaurants are open, but they're only open 25%. And then they close again and they get open to 50%. And there's just a lot of uncertainty right now. Like we were talking earlier about the whole hospitality industry. I mean, are people going to order out more? Are they going to be bringing it home more? Is that going to be the norm? Are people going to want to go out to restaurants like they used to go? No, no one has any answers there, right now. So. Right. How'd you like to own a uh, an event venue where you oh, make money after
0: you cross the eighty-seven percent capacity threshold?
1: They're not doing that. They're not even open. I mean, a lot of these event centers aren't really open. Yeah. I mean, we're still making money and we're still profitable. So we need to be thankful for that. Definitely. Cause there are a lot of industries. I mean, I hate to be in the cruise ship industry right now. So there is some silver lining to where we're at with that. The one big question I have, and especially people in the car wash industry, when I was first looking to sell maybe five or seven years ago, the multiples were three to five times earnings. And now they're upwards of 10 times, depending on your car washes, how many you're selling. How does somebody who buys your car wash, and I know institutional investors think much different than a individual who's buying a car wash, but an individual anymore can't buy a car wash at eight to 10 times earnings. Because I think the runway to make money on that is so long that it just doesn't make it worthwhile. So what what do institutional investors know about buying businesses that we don't know when they're paying these massive multiples?
0: I honestly don't know, David. I am an unapologetic small business guy. When we start to get to numbers like that, I mean, we talk about terms like economies of scale, all of those things. And I'm sure some of that's real. And I'm sure a lot of these guys make great money. And then every once in a while, we'll read about The roll up that failed miserably and they lost $170 million on it. So I genuinely don't know the rationale. But to your point, I worry that the individual car wash owner, right? That guy that owns the place in town, who's owned it for 15 years, who's got equipment that he duct tapes together that barely gets him through, that guy's not going to find a PE offer. He's not going to get the private equity buyout and he's going to sit there and wait for a 10X multiple until the place falls apart around him. But the fallout of that expectation is going to be substantial.
1: I would agree with that. I'm glad you don't know either. That tells me, Mike, that maybe nobody knows except a few people why these multiples are so high. And I'm, I'm guessing if they put together enough units, then they sell it to another private equity company, and then they just keep passing that debt down. But those are people that are a lot smarter than I am when it comes to figuring out those types of financial arrangements.
0: It's lost on me. And there was a time when I was jealous of that knowledge. But again, when you start to look at the numbers and you realize how narrow that band of purchases in that space is. I'm very comfortable saying to the small business owners listening, private equity is never gonna buy your business. And I'm wrong, but I'm wrong like 0.018%.
1: So I'm mostly right. I think you're correct on that. How do you teach people to rationally look at their business? So I sort of had an attitude over time when I was trying to get myself ready for sale I always thought, you know, every business should be for sale. And this is not necessarily, it's a reflection of me, but it doesn't represent me as an individual. And if somebody wants to buy my business, I need to be willing to sell it. How do you get people to look at selling in a rational light?
0: Well, I mean, I think the start is recognizing that every business transitions one way or the other. You're not going to own this thing in 100 years or 50 years, or most of us don't last that long. And we're going to transition the business anyways. So we think we're going out on a sailboat at the pinnacle of our performance. And that's not how it works. Most businesses that get forced to sell get forced because of death, divorce or disability, the 3 Ds. Those that wait until one of those things occur generally find themselves unable to sell or selling for pennies on the dollar. I don't like the term exit planning because it always reminds me of the death tax, you know, naming for the estate tax. It feels like it's named as a way to discourage a person. Again, most of us view And most of the industry that works in the sell-a-business space is all about the deal. You have to sell for them to be compensated. I love the idea of business owners that start to engage the idea of selling as an inevitable positive result of running the business right. And so I'll give you a simple example. One of the things that I encourage my clients and all small businesses to do is to have a conversation with a business broker at least once a year. Call them up, tell them, listen, I am interested in learning more about what it would look like to sell my business. I don't think I'm ready to sell. I guarantee you that the broker is going to be excited to talk to you. They're going to offer a free valuation to you. And You give them your financials, you sit down and talk with them. Then the next year, you do the exact same thing with a different broker. And if you make that part of your practice and it takes you, I don't know, four hours a year to do that, I guarantee you that as time goes by, your comfort with the concept of selling, your understanding of what a sellable business looks like, and your ability to say, I've talked to five or six brokers, I liked Mary best. You're ready. You're prepped. All you've done, really the key thing that's changed there, David, is that I've embraced the idea that this is going to happen someday and I want to do it right instead of keeping it somewhere else in my brain and ignoring it. It's something that we as business owners have been conditioned to be ashamed of talking about because that's quitting. I'm not ready to quit. I'm not a quitter. So why would I think about selling my business?
1: I certainly see that. You mentioned the three D's in an article two or three years ago, and that really got my attention (laughs) to say, I need to sell the business because I wasn't the only owner. I had other owners. And I think if I was put in a situation where I died or my wife left me or something happened, I was going to be at a major disadvantage because I was the managing partner, I was the majority owner, but I didn't have a lot of control over the business. I wish I did. And so that told me I needed to start looking for an opportunity to sell. And we came across a great opportunity to sell. And thank goodness the partners agreed to selling because if they didn't want to sell, I wasn't in a position to force them to do it. Part of what
0: we've tried to create with the site, and again, the exit oasis by design is designed to be a safe place for you to go to learn about this topic, right? It's not a broker site where every click you do is sucking you down a funnel. What we've looked to do is curate content So what that means is that some of it's we produce, but when we find good stuff online, we share it here. Just start learning about the topic, engage, learn what some of the real stuff that happens here. see the articles where they talk about that two and a half time multiple, and you can pretty quick start doing your own math to realize if I sell today, my business is gonna sell for about $300,000. Now that might be great, or it might be a tenth of what you thought it was worth. Either way, you're better informed about what your path moving forward might be. And again, the secret sauce here is that a sellable business is a fabulous business to own forever.
1: No doubt. So how do you help people at Exit Oasis besides developing content? There's the content offering, and then I coach business owners.
0: I'm targeted to the very small. So what we do is we meet on a monthly basis, and we orient the planning and the decision-making. And we talk about what it means to run a business, but I become the only advocate in your life for making a successful exit. Because as the business owner, no one else cares about that. Your employees aren't going to come in and advocate for it, your vendors, your customers. The only person that's going to advocate for it is you and for a small fee, me. What I do is I coach small business owners who are interested in transitioning their business to a place where they can sell it when and if they want to. Again, we start from the premise that in for most businesses, they start out unsellable. And sometimes it's because they're not profitable enough to depend on the business owner. But sometimes it's goofy stuff. I had a client who subsequently sold the business that when we first sat down and looked at her balance sheet, it became very clear that because of how she used her line of credit, I can remember the conversation where I told her this, I said, you're going to need to bring money to the table to sell your business. Well, what do you mean? I said, if most deals are gonna come with 20 to 30% down, you're gonna use all of that and then some to pay off your line of credit. Well, the reality for her is that it was a way of operating that she had, but 18 months later, she had a zero balance on her line of credit and she sold the business. Sometimes it's those things that we don't know that we don't know as barriers to a sale. And so that's what we do. We talk about that stuff. We determine pacing. It's always up to the business owner. I'm a firm believer that the only person that makes a business sellable is the owner. And so it's about helping them orient their thinking and decision-making towards that end.
1: What I love about what you do, Mike, is you help business owners get ready. And it could take years. I have a good friend who's a broker here in Colorado Springs that he tells people they want to bring their business to him. He goes, this is unsellable. Go away, do these five things, and come back in three years and we'll talk. But you're that person that walks with that business owner to help get their business ready to sell.
0: That's right. I mean, part of the reality for me, David, is I lived it, right? My first business, I grew for 10 years. I had 50 employees. I was burnt out. I was ready to sell, had all those conversations with the brokers. And they said exactly what your broker friend just said, go away and come back. And I spent five years in the trenches changing that business. And at the end of that five years, I had 50 employees, almost identical annual revenue but we were profitable, it was less dependent, that we had changed those things we need to change. But the point of that story is that had I not had that outside influence, I would have continued to run my business the way I had, because that's what we do as owners. We run our businesses. And unless we know the consequence of the way we're doing it, there's no motivation to change. That is the single most fun thing about what I get to do, though, because Nothing provides motivation for a business owner to change like the conversation in this space. When you get to the point as owner where you go, I don't want to do this anymore, your openness to do things differently makes for an interesting ride.
1: Almost like people need to feel the pain before they're willing to change. Absolutely. So good. Good. So if people want to contact you, Mike, and... At least go to your website, but find out what you do. Where would you?
0: Yeah, they'd hit us at exitoasis.com. And you can contact me through the contact portion there. But again, consume, read. You can find me on LinkedIn. It's a journey. And it's one that, again, I've been lucky enough to have four successful exits myself. But I can tell you in all honesty that the phone calls that I get, the meetings that I have with owners after they've sold their businesses are as rewarding to me as those own exit. It is a cool, life-changing do-over that is magical to behold when it happens in the right way.
1: That's great. No, that's fantastic. I appreciate what you do. I appreciate what you've put on your website and getting to visit with you. You've impacted my business journey. So I certainly appreciate you know you dealing with the issues that your accounts and your attorneys are not dealing with. So I appreciate that.
0: I appreciate you saying that, David. It's a pleasure to be engaged with you.
1: Well, thanks, Mike. I appreciate it. So I want to thank everybody for listening to this episode of Car Wash the Podcast. And again, we want to get this podcast in the hands of more people in the car wash industry. So if you will, tell your friends and associates about the podcast. You can get Car Wash the Podcast anywhere, any platform that has podcasts, or you can simply go to carwashthepodcast.com. So for myself and Mike, thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next time and keep washing those cars.
0: Car Wash the podcast is your source for real stories and real business insights from the experts, both in and out of the car wash industry. Our show helps investors, owners, operators, and managers think about ways to enhance their business. Our podcast is a free on-demand audio program that provides information on the latest trends impacting the industry, tips from successful industry leaders, and inspiration for our listeners.